Yeah, this is a tough, you know, thing. I think a lot of organizations struggle with this. Um, and I'm gonna tell you something that I used to do. Um, and I still do this now as an entrepreneur, but particularly when I was leading nonprofits, there, there was uh, one particular tactic I would use on a consistent basis. We would not hire folks until contracts were signed. And it's for the reasons you talked about, because until contracts are signed or some sort of major industry standard commitment has been made, we are at risk. And because we're in an industry that already doesn't pay that great and people put at risk careers to leave their job, put in two week notice to come with you, find out things don't work out, they then have to go back um, to where they left. That can be tough and it can certainly get around in terms of you know your organization's hiring practices and how it can sour uh, opinions about you. So um, something that I, I would do, uh, typically I would do once we got a verbal commitment and we're negotiating contracts, and I'm assuming, did you get a verbal commitment saying that, yeah, you've been selected for this funding? Yes. Okay. So at that point, um, some organizations use that as a means to hire um, unless you believe the contract is not going to come through. So what we would do once we got the award notice, award letter, we would immediately post the jobs to get the journey, the process started. Depending on what's negotiated and depending on the funder, there may be an agreement that, hey, the work doesn't start until contracts are signed. Or they may have a standing practice that says, go ahead and start the work, we'll finish the contract along the way which is not abnormal. I just think you need to find out what the expectations are. In the meantime, while this is being worked out, there's nothing to stop you from posting the job. There's nothing to stop you from interviewing now for the job. Uh, it's gonna take you a while anyway, just because the, the, the market is kind of dry for talent and you're gonna have to have a competitive offer. And so you don't wanna wait until the very end to start the process, but you don't wanna hire prematurely. So the, the in-between thing to do is to post an interview, uh, make direct outreaches uh, through platforms where talent can be had. So LinkedIn, referrals, word of mouth, recommendations, people who are on the front line looking to uh, make uh, a jump in their career. And you mentioned that these people are going to be, uh, let's see here, outreach coordinators and folks working at the school. So there may be some folks who are looking to make that jump, make that leap from one organization to the next, one career move to the next. So I would encourage you to go ahead and start that interviewing process and then kind of manage when to make offers based upon the status of the contract. The other thing too, you mentioned, you don't wanna be caught holding the bag, the bag, you know, January 1st when things start. Um, while that is, something that I, I certainly agree with. I think the reality of business uh, is that sometimes there may be delays because of whatever, right? And in this case, you're, you're, you're up against a tough situation. Number one, uh, talent access is gonna be key, but then as of this class, we're literally about to hit the, the, the speed button on holiday season. And even if people are looking for a job, they're going to spend that money first and spend the holidays with their family. So so really nothing is going to happen of substance um, until first, second week of January at best. So you want to give yourself as much of an advantage as you can, posting, interviewing, networking in between holidays, shopping, getting some interviews in. If you get lucky and fortunate to get somebody in the door, 
awesome sauce. But January 1st, you do want to also, I think, concurrent to the hiring process, manage expectations with your funder because you're managing the reality of bringing talent in um, and you need to make sure your funder has expectations that are appropriate. You also might want to have a backup plan with current staff in the event hiring gets delayed by anything or something that's unforeseen. Something to consider too, great feedback from everybody. When you started talking about the impact of background checks, and I think Rachel, Marianne, Latasha, all you all talked about the backlog, um, it got me thinking about an alternative strategy here to find talent. Because the background checks are gonna be important, background checks particularly around youth and kids are gonna be important because your staff's gonna be going into the school, it might be a good idea to explore how you can possibly hire from the school system in and of itself or the school schools you'll be staffing at. Um, and, and what I'm thinking about specifically are folks who are on the front line, some of the hall monitors, security guards, folks who are not doing in-classroom stuff, some classroom mentors who wanna do more of it, but in a different capacity, who've already had a background check recently, who've already been through the ringer in terms of uh, qualifying to be on school grounds, who's already familiar with the students if you're gonna hire from the school, that can be super uh, effective. In, in addition, most schools um, may have a PTO organization. So that means some parents who currently volunteer but don't want a full-time job, uh, but may take a part-time job just to be in the school with and near their kids to continue to serve and make connections, they may be available as well because they already show up on a regular basis as volunteers. And depending on the school, they may have had to already do a background check, so that kind of solves that problem. So then if that is an option, you either wanna work directly with principals at the schools that you're gonna be staffing and or the HR department of the school system to kind of figure out how you can possibly hire some staff and or, and, and this is another strategy too, maybe some staff don't wanna leave their school district job, but you have dollars to hire them part-time. So maybe you can staff um, a hall monitor part-time for this project to stay at their school to work a different job for you while still maintaining the other job, therefore solving multiple problems for three groups. You get a person already familiar with the school and you, you get to bypass this delay. The school district who can't really pay more for each position has a, a happy worker, and then the worker gets full-time hours if they want it, right, and doesn't have to change jobs, but has another income source. The, the cool thing about that idea, Rachel, too, I love how you talked about Boys and Girls Clubs, I would say YMCAs, YWCAs, other national chains or community youth-serving groups near the school. The, that strategy is winning. And I want to add this to what uh, Rachel said, Lee. Um, if you're going to approach these staffers, you might as well do it through the front door. All right. Go talk to these EDs, HR departments, and talk about uh, a co-recruitment relationship where staff that they can't pay full time can have full time hours in partnership with you and them. So what this looks like you know, depending on the type of age group that nonprofit serves, if it aligns with your funding priority and they are looking to recruit more youth in that age group and they've had trouble or they just don't have staff capacity due to limited budgets, 
you're coming now with a daytime offering for same staff to work with those same young people for your grant, co-enroll them into the grants or programs for uh, YMCA, YWCA, Boys and Girls Club and their afternoon programs. Therefore, youth are getting more of a full day support network, right? Which is a compelling story to tell. When you talk about reports, future funding opportunities uh, on both sides for your group and the other group and, and the youth, which who's the customer, they win. Right. This this is this is tremendous. And, and, and I think before I jump to you, Marianne, this is also part of the thinking when you start looking at new funding that you have a ready made partner possibly in place to do double duty to make sure youth are covered and provided for. So here, here are my thoughts about um, who manages that relationship. I don't think it's a, a development relationship at all, um, because in this situation, it's your money and you're not sharing it with anybody. This is a funding opportunity you secured and that's it full stop. So there is no formal commitment that is being made, but there is a slight caveat that I see. If these folks are hired from partner organizations, if you're going to go through the front door, the person that manages new staff will be the program manager of this new grant. That's it, right? It just so happens that the people that they've hired are working with other community organizations that may serve some portion or segment of the population that you're targeting as well. If you decide uh, between you and the other ED, other organizations, to engage in information sharing, sharing recruitment responsibilities because you'll have full access to students, you'll have uh, full access to the school, you'll be able to recruit and promote programs uh, with a captive audience. That may become formal, it doesn't have to, but if you all start sharing data and you'll be the lead here, you would probably have to decide if you wanna do that, right? And what's the extent of that? So that, in my view, is the extent of the formality. The other part of this too, none of this falls under you either. But one thing you do wanna be mindful of is you will be responsible for the B2B relationships with these organizations. So ED to ED relationship, because some EDs may be weary of working with others for whatever reason. Some may have competed for the dollars you got, or you know they may be jealous, and so they might not be the best partner. And I think you need to fill that out. But ultimately, to keep the flow of staff, you're gonna have to continue to massage that because even though we're saying this in this classroom environment and these ideas sound absolutely amazing, the reality in the real world is that some ED is gonna hear this and say, you're gonna to try to steal my staff. And they're not gonna see it through the lens of staff sharing, resource sharing, expanding the income capacity of staff without them having to get new jobs or upskill is consistent with their role. They're not gonna hear the perspective of, well, you don't have to raise new money uh, to you know, give Timmy a raise or give him a larger salary because I know it's been a struggle. We can just partner together. They're not gonna hear that. Some are gonna hear you're taking what I've worked hard for. So your job in a, least, in a less formal way is to manage that B2B relationship with the right folks. And this may mean that some groups may not be the right fit for what you're trying to do, and it's okay. But it does you know, mean that when you 
find a group that is the right fit, go all in, right? Because it can pay off dividends uh, in terms of finding the staff you're looking for and building this program ops that you're looking to build. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm re referring to specifically, I don't know if I said it yet in the lectures, uh, and I'm sure I might have said it in previous courses, but you will hear me talk about this idea that if your nonprofit's going to launch a for-profit venture, which you can do, um, it is important for you to launch a for-profit venture within the competency or skill level of your organization. So if you have a youth serving organization, but you're going to randomly launch a cupcake sale business, that makes absolutely no sense, right? Because no one within the organization, in theory, has a background in, in baking cupcakes at mass and selling cupcakes, right? But if you're going to try to monetize what you do, particularly, let, let's say for the sake of argument, youth services, it makes a whole lot of sense that you look at the competencies that emanate from that type of work. Well, for example, you work with youth, so you likely have a very strong social work, case management, counseling, coaching background in the organization as a whole. You have uh, experience developing curriculum. You have experience mentoring. You have experience recruiting. You have experience teaching. You have experience designing, developing programs. You have experience um, doing community uh, canvassing and survey analysis and data collection and data management. These are things that your organization likely does on a day-to-day -day basis with this grant-funded programs. So what most organizations do, or the way they think about it, unfortunately, is that they do these 10 things well, but they decide to go outside the box of their competency and launch a car wash business, a cupcake sale business, a restaurant. Now, the caveat is, if that's intentional and you're seeking um, to develop the skill associated with the launch of that separate business so that it can benefit your clientele, that is different, right? But just understand, even when intentional, that can deter uh, a lot of people from moving forward and supporting the idea. That will take a lot of, uh, a, that's a large learning curve to learn that new type of work. And so what I'm teaching is that to lower the learning curve, to increase the speed and acceleration of launching something that's relevant, look at what you do well. Look at what your organization does well today. And this is a collective thing, not just the ED, not just a select few. What do you all do well every day and how do you monetize that? It may show up, again, listen, look at the 10 things I listed. It may show up that you may offer consultative services to others. It may show up as a partnership with other groups as a for-profit entity. So for example, we were talking about you hiring potentially social workers to work in your program. What would it look like if you got a referral fee from every social worker or therapist you made a reference to, a referral to, who has a skill and a business interest in serving your clientele. It may look like you packaging the philosophy of your program design elements and selling it around the region or around the state or around the country, teaching other organizations who do what you do or who wanna learn what you're, what you're doing and teaching them how to do what you do and certifying them, right? That makes a whole lot of sense because you do this every day, you're not only packaging and selling these things, but watch this, you're getting better because you're a daily practitioner. So that means you're refining the work. You're refining the craft. Every time your staff walks in, logs in, calls a youth, emails a youth, texts a youth, recruits a youth, serves a youth, works with the parents, works with the schools, 
you're refining the work. It's a daily thing. But now when you throw this random wrench into the, the mix of a cupcake business, that's a whole new learning curve that is so outside of the beaten path of the core competency of the organization. So when we talk about a social venture, the concept should be that you're launching a for-profit venture you're, you can compete with on the, in the open market that's consistent with the everyday knowledge and skill of, the, of your organization and your team. Yeah, that, that piece is very essential to organizational sustainability. And some of you may have heard things from your attorneys and accountants about unrelated business income, you know, because you're looking to launch something that's not related to the mission of the organization. And this is where that comes from, where you're doing things that just doesn't make logical sense. And then it doesn't make legal sense because it can be a resource drain on the organization and it can threaten your tax exempt status.